I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die. Hello, hello, welcome back to The Left is Dead. This is a new episode of ours, a new post-election episode of ours, and we haven't done many episodes since the election, so I feel like this is going to be uh, some, some relatively lukewarm takes, but well-considered well takes, uh, and I'm here with my, my co-host, uh, the one and only, the hilarious Jim Carrey. How are you doing, buddy? Good, I'm good. What have you been doing since the election? Oh, How are you processing this? just mostly, uh, what have I been doing? I don't even know. Uh, work, I've been working. That's, uh, but the way I'm processing oh, it. I'm getting dead uh, people's votes for Biden in Portland. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was passed <laughs> with. I, I was, I was given um, uh, Soros District D7 uh to uh oh d7 yeah d7 real estate i know i was honored honored and privileged to take on you have to be like you know top level like mid-management to work in portland for them right yeah um and uh i finally received my first first paycheck from soros so like i'm you know i'm able to buy some some uh, vibrators and satanic statues and whatnot. So it's just, it's, it's going well, man. I've um, been recording people who I believe to be our foreign nationals bringing boxes of what I assume are ballots for Biden out of uh, city halls. Right. To stop the steal, obviously. That's an important part of it. Yeah, but I mean, we, yeah. It's been interesting watching I was just speaking with someone about this, actually. It's incredible to me, but it's important, I think, to realize that if this election had been any closer, it's almost a certainty that Trump would have had a pretty good likelihood of stealing it. Like if this were down to, let's say, one or two states, um, and if the tallies were slightly closer, we'd be in a completely different universe right now. But because he is up in three to four different states that would need to flip, and he's up by margins that range from 20,000 to 100,000. Uh, I think it's closer to 100,000 in places, yeah. but uh, with the exception of Georgia, where it is legitimately pretty close, but still not as close as Florida was. But in certified 2000. through a recount, too. Right, absolutely. And, and already done there. There's simply no zero pathway towards victory for Trump. Yeah. And they've, they've even exhausted all of their, their legal options at this point. I mean, not all of them. I'm sure they're going to keep going, but they have been rejected with, with, um, with extreme prejudice by, ju- uh, by conservative judges in Pennsylvania that's, and other places. I mean, that's did you, what I want to touch the, on. Yeah, did you see the rebuke from the Pennsylvania judge? I think his name is, uh, what's his name? I can't uh, remember, but that was earlier today. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was earlier today. What well, was last night? It was last night, right. actually. Pennsylvania said they'd... Um, Bran. Bran is his name. Okay, they said they would certify the results of the election. And Georgia obviously went through one count and then a hand recount. And then if it, now Trump wants another recount, which would just be sending the ballots back through the machines. Right. So what's going on here is like, like you said, Florida was a different beast, right? That was one county um, right. in the middle of a recount and they stopped one recount. Right. And that was already, you know, it was that county that could have determined things for sure. But they stopped one recount and Jeb Bush was the governor at the time and had appointees to like the Florida courts and shit. And then the Supreme Court obviously took Bush's side in that, you know. But here's the thing. Here's my prediction is these ridiculous lawsuits based on, you know, and Bush, I don't know. Just say what you will, but he had a way better legal team than Rudy Giuliani with fucking hair dye leaking down the side of his head. Well, he had a better legal argument, more importantly. Like, yeah, he actually had an only. argument. It was a flawed argument, and in many ways, he, they really but, did steal that election. But they did have a legal argument. And a much smaller hill to climb. Right. One county in one state after a recount, right? Right, exactly. This time, there are, like, what, four to five states where lawsuits are happening. Each time they're being struck down by basically judges that Trump has appointed in the last few years. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, judge, of, like you said, a lot of them in, in Pennsylvania, he's part of the Federalist Society. So, yeah, here's my prediction is, yeah, he's going to keep challenging these decisions likely. But I think the Supreme Court at this point, they couldn't give a fuck, man. There's zero there's zero chance the Supreme Court will even see the case yeah exactly and if they did you know who dissent it would be like kavanaugh and roberts i, I think so honestly i really do i it think would. i think what we're seeing here is a judiciary firewall against a coup it'd be the guys who are really committed to the republican cause and realize there's nothing benefiting that cause from trump besides being weighed down and trying to appeal to this cult that might turn on you any day right They've already turned on Kavanaugh for some of the decisions he's made. They, they, they've turned on Fox News, dude. Yeah, they turned exactly. on Tucker Carlson because because he said we would like some evidence. And, you know, it's just like they, these. This is a cult. It's 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 terrifying. And I think once we get past this phase, um, we're going to realize, uh, as as most of us realize, I'm sure me and you both did that. This cult is not going to go away. This is a permanent, no, yeah, uh, the permanent faction that we will be contending with. This will be the question, right? The people who think that this like election is so illegitimate that all the states, including California, flipped red, besides like New York. <clears throat> oh, you're talking about the the QAnon people that yeah. said that that are still saying Trump won all fifty states, or at least like crazy states where they'll say like he won like california and like he should have won like major urban centers and like no they're nuts states. they're yeah. nuts they're so delusional about the state of like look i am definitely obviously uh you know, indoctrinated more towards the left wing everyone's indoctrinated toward their certain point of view but i would never for a second assert that there isn't a massive contingent of actual conservative voters who vote for conservatives. That's essentially what they're arguing right now is that they're not arguing that liberals are in the minority or that they're wrong. They're arguing that liberals don't exist. Yeah, like they're exactly. arguing that they don't come out in a boat. And it's just such a, I mean, they have made so many ridiculous arguments 
that it's in many ways, I saw someone tweet, this is going to end up being one of the most secure elections because Trump is going to end up losing some of these states three or four times with recounts and with lawsuits. Like it's going to be hard for them to argue that, but they're not going to need to argue because at this point, they're not making a rational argument. At this point, this is, I mean, this is a coup. Right. It, it's not going to work. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it's not going to work. But it's scary to think that it could work. And in a future election that is closer, that has a few different dynamics at play, uh, we're, we're seeing now that the there's no guardrails. Like there is basically the Constitution does not consider or provide for a president that refuses to step down. That's the thing that here's my question. I think he'll leave. You know, he'll probably start running for president again because he has so much campaign money he can't do anything else with. But my question now is, like, if these Federalist Society and, like, Mitch McConnell Republicans, and, you know, all signs point to they'll toss him out if he decides to take this far enough. You know, they're not going to say shit about the Supreme Court throwing out the case or anything like that. They've gotten what they wanted, right? So now, as I see it, there's two parties on paper, right? There's the Democratic Party, which thanks to the 2016 and 2020 elections has managed to absorb like all the neocons from the early 2000s, right? making them basically like a Republican hawk party. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Republican Party who still has a bunch of those people, even though they kind of like cucked themselves to Trump for four years and tried to stay (laughs) silent to avoid getting, you know, shit on on Twitter. But those people still don't like him and will be happy when the Trump cult's gone. Now, the issue beyond that is, okay, there's your two parties. They're both right-wing, like, shitty neocon parties. But in the last election, a bunch of, like, QAnon dipshits, like, what's Marjorie Taylor Greene and shit like that, won their seats and entered the House. So this means there is, like, an official new contingent of the Republican Party that's entered electoral politics. What right. do, what do they do over the next couple of years as they lose that ties to like a non Donald Trump GOP? I don't know, man, and that's a good question. Um, I, I I think it's an interesting question. What's going to happen to QAnon in general? I mean, it's something I keep track of very closely, simply because. Um, it struck me as kind of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. These these uh, these QAnon people were uh, had this unstoppable momentum and energy, but eventually it was inevitable that they were going to hit the steel wall of reality. It was inevitable. I was worried that it was going to take even longer, but now we're seeing what happens when the delusion meets the the road, uh, when the rubber meets the road, I guess, a horribly stupid metaphor, but uh, I, I don't know. And, and look, all of the main QAnon people are still digging down. They still believe that Trump won. They believe that Sidney Powell is going to release the Kraken. Dude, that, Trump's it, own we, lawyers out there saying that shit. 
there's they're saying is Sidney Powell, their lawyers are now officially yeah. full blown into Q now. They're saying things. Yeah. And Giuliani's uh, talking about like hammer and scorecard and shit like that. Right. And they're just there's no I mean, it's almost like basically what they're what they're doing right now reminds me of when you play a board game with a kid and the kid once he realized he lost, he flips the board over. This is more uh, like burning the board. Because burning like, the board, Their yeah. pieces are still on the board, and they're not even off it yet, right? Right. But they're, they're just like... refuse to ignore. Like, I don't ultimately know what happens when there is a political contingent that will refuse to admit they're wrong no matter what. No matter what. That's the Q contingent, man. Yeah. And those and, that's what's gonna be interesting is like does the next like third party to emerge not be like a shitty libertarian party like the libertarian like a shitty right wing party like the libertarians, but rather a shitty right wing party that's like a populist anti-elitist party, which unfortunately I do believe had has potential, as you've seen with like the save the children stuff and shit like that. Like these people can suck in normies without them. Sure what they sign on to well they've they've radicalized a lot of people i mean but we're talking about they've radicalized thousands maybe tens of thousands maybe maybe hundreds of thousands i don't think we're talking about a contingent large enough to have uh they got outsized power because of trump um once trump is gone i'm not sure that they're gonna have this emboldened sense that they have had and I also don't see how this can possibly be good for the Republican Party uh, and people like Mitch McConnell to have such an incredibly divisive, corrosive, and incendiary part of your base that is, but but that yet still seems to control the base. It's it's incredible the extent to which hardcore MAGA is controlling the Republican base right now, and it's because they don't want to lose. Our, our, our disillusion that base, but we're seeing it now with them rejecting Fox News. Like they, they reject anything that, that, that even remotely calls upon any sense of reality. I mean, when, you, when, it, when we're sitting here looking at Tucker Carlson being the voice of reason on the right, I mean, that, that is a scary state we're in right now. Yeah, it's not good to have like right wing. Um questioning like the efficacy of capitalism but that's what makes me wonder like if the q people will have like an influence on like a split or just like a fracture in the gop similar to that in the democrats right yeah there's this split where there's this group that literally hates all of like the establishment republicans and will eventually accuse any of them working with them of being a pedophile or something that's what they're doing right now yeah right so i see that continuing and like that kind of behavior like it it can only lead to like either a complete disillusion of the party and i guess we'd have like a one-party state under the neocon democrats yeah that's uh unfortunately that's the Lincoln Party Democrats, the, the the Lincoln Project Democrats, probably seems to be um, the group that is going to come out strongest from this. 
Yeah, exactly. And I like that it, the neocons are back in both parties. Right. You know, the Warhawks. Which is which is amazing. It, 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 all this work that the QAnon people thought they did to wrest us free from the grip of the deep state. And here we are now back and the neoliberal neoconservative consortium controlling the world is probably going to end up being stronger than ever from this. I'll say this to the QAnon people, that's their own fault because they made excuses for like Elliot Abrams and John Bolton. Right. And all of these like Bush era ghouls that were like, well, they're actually like an apparatchik of Trump and we'll never obey him. Right. You know, it's like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Right? Well, no, that, and that's what happens when you construct a narrative piecemeal out of, out of bullshit, out of uh, any random scraps or nails or thumbtacks yeah. or whatever you can find when you're just creating this this narrative based on an anonymous fucking troll online <laughs> same with the yeah. generals uh, my god man i mean it is i mean people are gonna i mean historians a hundred years from now are gonna look back on this and just be like what the hell happened with these like, people the a big example is the generals like kelly and mcmaster hired into the cabinet and shit Mm-hmm. And like these are like butchers from the Iraq War, right? Right. Yeah, these are like hardcore neocons. Yeah. yeah. And Trump brings them in, and he's like, "Yeah, these are the guys who are gonna fucking steer the government. These guys know like what government policy makes us, us strongest and shit." And it's like, dude, these are the same neocon ghouls who like worked their way up under like the uh, the Clinton and Bush administrations. And the you know Kelly himself is responsible for a bunch of war crimes. <laughs> That's why the only right. funny thing and, Trump uh, does is when he like disrespects dead troops. Basically, yeah, I think that uh, you know, and and Trump has had this kind of de facto uh, ideology of ending the wars, but mm-hmm. th- this this drives me crazy almost more than any than anything else that people talk about as is like look yeah trump did not start a new hot war no he didn't but he has continued the drone bombings of all of the countries afghanistan iraq syria yemen all of them in fact uh there's very sound statistics you can look up that trump has actually dropped more drone bombs than bush and obama either of them and those two, and those two presidents served two terms. Trump dropped more bombs in one term than those presidents did in two terms. Even beyond that, though, now Trump is out making like global arms sales to some of the most notorious nations in the world, and clearly looking for like maybe not a direct war, but like some type of higher level confrontation with Iran. Oh yeah, he wants he he's been goading Iran for for years now. Yeah, I just think he wants the Arabs to do it for him is the problem and I don't think they want to fucking do it. I I think he I think he wanted I think he wanted uh, uh, someone to attack us or a, ter- a terror attack or something like he, that. I think he definitely wanted something to justify it like maybe an attack on Israel or something, but nobody Oh, that would have been that would have been his dream scenario. Nobody's dumb enough to do that without a preemptive strike by Israel, though. Right. And then nobody would fucking do no. Like no, a po- po- Pompeo is over there, like giving hand jobs in Israel as 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 we speak. Well, I mean, not as we speak, but that's what he was doing last, last week. Days, he he yeah. was going over there in 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 you know settled territories that that no national, no Secretary of State has ever 
gone into one into one of these territories and a Syrian territory and officially acknowledged them. Yeah. And no one has ever done that before. I mean, their solidarity with the most extreme war hawks of Israel or of the Israeli state is pretty phenomenal. I mean, really, it's it's funny, too, because the Trump people now are like they're trying to like point to all these things like oh, look at all these peace deals that he's made in the last couple months. And then you look at him, it's all like, oh, Bahrain, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, all normalized ties with Israel. Like, these aren't peace deals. This is like a military alliance, obviously. Right. And I I guarantee you, this is about money. I guarantee you, we're going to find out. I mean, dude, there's probably so much muck that went on during the Trump era that we don't even know about yet that's going to come out, uh, but there's no way I've, I, I feel like all of this involved, all the stuff with Turkey, mm-hmm. all the stuff with, with Saudi Arabia, I, I feel like, I feel like really shady shit went down there. And I just don't trust that Trump was doing anything in good faith. I just don't. I think it was all about what he can get. Like the same with that. To me, that was the biggest part of the impeachment thing. It's not not so much whether Trump committed an impeachable offense, but just getting an inside view of how he conducts foreign policy. Everything with Ukraine was about what can I get from you? It was a trans. It was a transactional relationship that had nothing to do with larger geopolitical goals whatsoever. I think that's true, but I also think that when we find out, like, the extent of corruption, it'll be, like, hilarious, because it'll be for, like, building permits. Oh, yeah, no, that's exactly what I think, too. I think think charging state officials to stay in his hotel. Absolutely, dude. I think I totally think brain corruption. It's going to it's going to be mid level shit. But I think he's I think what he's going to what he's done is is probably exported a bunch of state secrets and information that his family will be able to use for decades. And I would imagine that's what he's doing right now. That's why no one's seen him in two weeks. He's fucking looting. He's fucking looting the white house. He's taking every piece of national security information he can find and figuring out a way to monetize it in some way so that when he leaves office, he's still going to be able to, uh, basically uh, wield some kind of leverage or power over some of these uh, some of these states i mean it's 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 if you listen to national security experts and look you know that i'm not some hawk that puts a bunch of stock into you know uh, deep state officials whatever you want to call the deep state Right. Uh, career career war hawks, basically. I, I I don't put much stock into that, but well, I think. Th- that- but but no, just let me finish. There there's never been a situation like this before. There's never been a president leaving office that people in the State Department and the Defense Department were genuine Pentagon were legitimately concerned this person be- could become a national security threat because of what he knows. Okay, so that kind of transitions us into tonight. Okay. Because we are going to talk to my friend, uh, Sun Fei Yang, who is uh, a China watcher, a kind of amateur China watcher. But I mean, he lived in China. His wife is from China. His family's in China. So he has some experience with this. Um, And what I want to talk to him about is uh, what's going on in other parts of the world, especially China, 
as we go through like this weird crisis of democracy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm excited to hear about this. As I, you, I, yeah, as I don't see, want I don't want to spend all our time talking about Trump. I want I want to I, I'm I'm happy to to get some some foundational information about about places like China right now. And we're going to go through how some of like the Trump policy is bad for China, but Biden also has bad policies lined up for China. And I think that we want to touch on that a lot of like <clears throat> the fact that like China or even the EU are starting to take more independent roles from United States policymaking shows like a kind of lack of confidence in the political process here. So I want to discuss that with him and I want to make sure we um, will also get into a bit of the planned economy because we, I think we should talk about what enables China to lift people out of poverty, the social spending on a scale we don't see here, um, the legitimate anti-corruption efforts and things like that, I think are important to discuss. And I think uh, Fei Yang will be a great guest for this. Um, so why don't we wrap this first segment up and we will bring him in and start our interview. special guest, Mr. Sun Fei-Yang. Uh, pleasure to have you with us. Um, do you want to run over, you know, what your kind of credentials are? I mean, you're not a professional journalist or scumbag or anything. So do you want to write, do you want to tell us like what makes you so interested in China and how you follow it so diligently? Yeah. So, you know, I, I did grow up here. I was born in China. Uh, it's a pretty rural place. And I go back quite often. And um, I guess, been pretty interested in it because you know every time I go back it's kind of amazing to see all the progress that's there uh, and the improvement uh, every time I go back and also contrasting that with the coverage of China that I see here in the U.S. which often starts to get very frustrating and so you know the last couple of years started to write uh, a little bit more about that both on medium and then also on social media um you know, and also start to like do a little bit of research uh, my, myself as well. Right. And your posts have been very impressive because you've been debunking a lot of, uh, especially after Hong Kong, where there was a lot of like westernized Hong Kong dipshits working for like uh, what the NED and stuff like that, who are behind these like protest groups and things like that. And 
you started to see around the same time, like the narratives about like the concentration camps or organ harvesting or whatever, whatever else they throw at China, you know, every couple of months, it's something different. So obviously, you know, there's a concentrated effort by the U.S. security state, you know, in seeing China as a foe pretty much universally. But what do you think? Let's start with this, I guess, so we can relate it to our audience. What do you think? Um, not just China, but as, like start with China, but the global world as a whole. What do you think they're perceiving of the instability here right now? And what effects do you think that'll have on the future? Well, I think it's definitely very concerning, like for, you know, what you would consider to be the U.S.'s traditional allies. Like, I'm pretty sure the the European Union, Australia, the U.K., they would have preferred kind of like a, a, a Biden landslide and then just, you know, like a smooth transition, then back to normal, and then everyone can kind of just go along with that facade. But this drawn out election, you know, the lawsuits by Trump, uh, him promising to run again, all of that is just making it a lot messier. And it's, it's made, you know, a lot of the US's allies kind of uncomfortable. I don't think they've really said anything publicly about it. You know, they did all call to congratulate Biden, kind of like to try and hurry it along. <laughs> but I'm sure they're they're all really uncomfortable uh, at at heart, and and that's why you see it like Macron in France. He's kind of trying to stake out his own path, and then Suga in Japan is also kind of hedging his bets as well. Do you think part of the discomfort is driven by like what happened in the last four years, the way that allies can see shit unravel so quickly? Yeah, and there's no you know people looking past Biden already. He's right. he's older than Trump. They see him as a one-term guy. So who's after Biden? You know, if Trump is promising to run again and people think he's going to win, then to to our uh, the U.S.'s allies, they're thinking, "Hey, this is actually just a short reprieve, and then we're right back to Trump." So you know, that's got to be worrying for 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 those countries. Yeah, and you see that a lot with like Iran and other um, nations targeted by the imperialist countries. You see. Uh... A genuine attempt to um, kind of, I don't know, there's an attempt by both parties really to attack them in different ways because there seems, and it, it seems to like be to me, like obviously that would shake their confidence when both parties are promising to attack and you can't guarantee that the second party who's supposedly more reasonable is even going to be around in what, four years or have any power in two years when the midterms hit. Exactly. Like, uh, you know, the, the Democrats failed to win the Senate. You know, I guess they still have an outside chance with the Georgia runoffs, but most likely we're headed into divided government. Yeah, um, I think that what's yeah, I think that obviously this confidence is kind of shaken. Everybody, no allies trust us at this point. And um, transferring from that, why don't we talk about COVID? because that seems to be where China made its mark. I don't, you know, um, the US and the Western like Anglo nations kind of froze everyone out of response to the COVID pandemic. So I'm wondering what you think, um, did that end up playing to China's advantage? Yeah, and I think that's quite a surprising turn of events. Like back in February or March, I don't think a lot of people could have saw this coming. Like even people in China 
kind of figure that, you know, the U.S. will, will put together an adequate response. Um, so I think a lot of uh, foreign countries have really been surprised about how poorly the U.S. response has gone. And the aside from the pandemic itself, I think another effect is that right now among major economies, China is the only one that's going to grow in 2020. And that's that's a pretty big deal because it makes a lot of other countries far more unwilling to go along with the U.S.'s plans of sanctions and, uh, you know, decoupling because, look, you know, <laughs> there's only one large country that's growing economically and you want exposure to that. You don't want to shut yourself off from that. So that's just going to be a much harder sell uh, to other countries now. And I agree because China has definitely like filled an international role, whether it be like COVID relief and things like that, but also um, obviously the Belt and Road Initiative. And we can talk about now too, since it's going to be President Biden, Biden's going to return to the policies of like subpar loans for nations in the global south. So could you explain to us a little bit the difference between, say, a loan the IMF makes and the type of economic deals China makes with their partners? Yeah, so I would say the biggest difference uh, at the top is that China doesn't really set any conditions on these loans. It's like, hey, UK, the country comes to China and they say they need a loan and China provides that loan. There's really no strings attached. Like there's an implicit understanding that, you know, we trust that, you know, enough uh about running your country to do, you know, handle that money properly. Whereas when the IMF gives loans, there tends to be quite a lot of uh, restrictions and conditions attached. Generally along, you know, it's phrased as like conditional and economic reform. Basically the country needs to open up, set more Western countries in, uh, Western companies in, things like that. And also, you know, the Deaths the IMF need to be repaid. Like I saw this fascinating thing about Ethiopia. Ethiopia has, you know, uh, it has a lot of foreign creditors. China is one of them. It's asked for debt forgiveness and then like debt extensions on the Chinese loans quite a few times. And China's always said yes. But Ethiopia has never been late or never even asked for an extension or forgiveness for any Western loans. Like, you know, countries know better than, than to ask for those terms. Uh, from Western lenders, including the IMF. So I think those are the two main differences. Like there's no conditions set on the Chinese loan. And then China is a lot more willing to forgive or to extend, you know, debt maturities, whereas uh, Western countries and institutions are far less willing to do that. Feiyang, could, could you, I was hoping, can you expand a little bit on, on that? And the reason I ask is because I didn't know much about kind of the, the difference in economic imperialism between the, these two superpowers, the US and China, until I, I read this book called Ec uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And it really opened my eyes to what I think a lot of Americans don't understand about the IMF and the way we bankroll other countries. What, what is it that you think is so detrimental about what, what the IMF and to a certain extent uh, the, you know, uh, other international foreign lending organizations uh, that, that, that America goes through? Wh wh why, why is that problematic in your, in your opinion? It's because, you know, those institutions were never set up 
to to help the developing world, like especially the IMF coming out of Bretton Woods. It was set up to ensure that the U.S. would have a dominant say, right? Like the U.S. has is the only country with veto power over uh, the IMF's decisions. They have I forget what the specifics are, but they have something like about eighty five percent of the vote share or something like that, just enough for a veto-proof majority. And, you know, it was set up that way. And they they weaponize these institutions. Like, um, I also read that book as well, by the way. It's a really fascinating read. But another example is Malawi, which was undergoing a famine in the 90s. And the IMF said, look, you know, that's honestly, that's kind of your fault. We still need you to make all of these drastic budget cuts so you can repay this loan you took out. You know, and that's in the midst of like a, a famine going on in that country. And, you know, that was they got a lot of negative press for that. But I don't think they really changed what they're asking for. Like um, they these institutions, they have a model in mind that they think works. And any countries taking loans will be expected to move toward that model because, you know, the IMF said like, hey, this is this is how you should run your economy if you want our money then you need to agree to that. And it's loans like that that also spark things like the, the 1997 Asian financial crisis, which you remember like affected a lot of economies you know, across Southeast Asia, East Asia, with one notable exception, which is China, which really didn't you know, take that much, uh, really wasn't affected by that financial crisis. And it's a similar story with the, the 2008, 2009 Great Recession. China also was, was not really that affected affected by those two downturns. So, you know, look, looking at that, it's, it really makes you wonder, you know, like, what is China doing differently? And at least like in 97, you know, China wasn't neck deep in IMF loans. China wasn't beholden to any Western institutions lending wise. Uh, and they weren't. Into so, so what does that do for these countries when, when they're, when they're beholden to the IMF, how, how does the U.S. leverage that for their uh, kind of global gains, exactly. Like how, you know, how, how is that different than what the kind of uh, loan, I mean, you've already explained this a little bit to where there's no conditions on the loans, but do you, do you see a larger geopolitical goal that the US is looking for that is different than what China is looking for? Yeah, so the US is, looking to open these countries up for Western companies. And generally that only falls into natural resource extraction, like, um, like Bolivia, the most recent example, uh, and the lithium reserves they have there, or like in Africa, um, you know, there's variously oil, diamonds, copper, all sorts of natural resources. And that's, you know, that's why you see so many large Western multinats in, in Africa and South America. They're really there like in the mining business and the extraction business. So they're not really focused on anything that doesn't relate to that. Whereas China, you look at a lot of their projects uh, in Africa and in the developing world, a lot of them don't really have to do with that. Like, you know, there's a subway or there's a in, in Pakistan that, that China built, like uh, there's a railway, a passenger railway that goes from Ethiopia through Djibouti to the sea. That's also built by China. And those don't really have like practical application for, for natural resource extraction, but they do benefit like the people who live there quite a bit. And, you know, China agreed to those loans and to finance those projects because those countries say, Hey, you know, like we think this would be good and we would like that. So those are the types of projects that China is willing to finance. 
And, um, you know, Western nations aren't really interested in that because there's no immediate profit gain for them. There's not really like, uh, hey, how is this passenger rail going to turn me a profit down the road? And China's willing to do that for, you know, for the sake of good relations. Um, I think on this note, there's, uh, you know, Varoufakis, that, that Greek, former Greek finance minister. You guys are familiar with him? Uh, no. Oh, he was he was I, the yeah the Greek Greek finance minister during the the great like you know eurozone crisis. Theresa, right? And he's kind of like a sock dem right now. Yeah. He's on the speaking circuit. He's like in the periphery of Syriza. That's him. Yeah. Yeah, he was all right, but go on. Yeah, so he gave a speech in D.C. once about China and Africa, and he said like you know they're completely different than any Western country and. And that really shocked a lot of the audience members because they're like, well, what do you mean? You know, isn't China the new imperialist in Africa? And he's like, no, I was there in Ethiopia. And there are these roads that China was literally just building for free. And all they told the Ethiopian government was like, look, you know, there's other projects in the future. Uh, and there are a lot of bidders, you know, you know, look our way a little bit more. But that's all, you know, there's no we don't need like a guarantee from you or anything, but you know, we're willing to do this stuff just as like a gesture of goodwill. Right. Um, and you know, they, they're perfectly fine to do, do projects like that all across the world. Do you think that that uh, is, I mean, does that make sense to you in terms of also the way we've conducted our wars? Like if you look at not just economic imperialism, but U uh, S uh, military expansion in the Middle East and also in other countries in terms of South America, Central America, uh, and, and how we influence those countries. Do you think there's a parallel there? I mean, do you see China doing the same kind of, of military interventions? I mean, some people would argue that they have uh, lit the heavy hand against you know, country, uh, you know, there's other, there are countries that China wants within their sphere that they lift a heavy hand against. But do you think that's in any way comparable to the war on terror and what the U.S. has been doing uh, globally in the last couple decades? No, it's absolutely not comparable. There's, there's been like no Chinese, China hasn't fought a war with like a, another country for what, like four decades or something. And in those four decades, you know, how many times has the U.S. gone to war? And even like, you know, within China's sphere, I don't, I don't think there's any country that China threatens militarily. You know, there's like been some like border clashes with India and the mountains where the, the lines are, you know, ill-defined. But, you know, aside from that, there's, I, there's not really any instance I can think of in which China has like used military coercion on, on any neighboring country. Uh, much like, you know, to the scale that the U.S. has. Um, but if, you know, if you have examples in mind that you'd like to talk about. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I was I was teeing you up for that exact statement. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you there that uh, I think that there is a, a, a profound difference in 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 the way these two emp global empires are are conducting themselves. Uh, it's unfair to call one an empire. Well, I, I meant a powerful uh, global entity. Um, okay. Well, what what should I call it? The, the genuine will accept that. 
What, what do you want me to call it? A country? I'll call it a country. The number one superpower. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Some, put some fucking respect on it, asshole. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think that, um, I think that there is definitely a difference when you see, I mean, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, you, you, you touched on how the IMF, when they come in, they, they enforce like uh, strict austerity they um enforce you know democratic norms on countries that they get involved in and stuff like that whereas i feel china's policy is much more like well whoever answers the phone tomorrow that's who we'll talk to because we're not involved in eternal affairs do you think that reflects like on their africa policy and stuff like that yeah that's pretty much it like there's not like you know even when leaders are elected that are seen to be unfriendly toward China. You know, China is not going to try and like foment regime change in that country. Like they'll still reach out to them and try and work with them, you know, and if they don't want to, they don't want to, but you know, there's China just moves on. Like I, we can trade with another country instead. Um, yeah. There's not really been any interest in like, you know, trying to get rid of leaders. You don't like abroad. Whereas the U S you know, they, they obviously have quite the track record of dealing with, you know, unfriendly, unfriendly leaders of other countries. Well, that's what the cracks me up about things like um, Afghanistan, where like this giant war was fought. And like, then the only people who got rights to minerals were Chinese companies, you know, they just show that like the destruction of U S imperialism is so like counterproductive and what they're doing seems to have such a different angle to it, you know? And like you said, they're not necessarily out for financial gain either as much as they are for expanding like infrastructure in a region that could benefit them in the future because they don't, they don't put all of these like pressures on countries that they give infrastructure projects to or anything like that. Whereas like you said, the US, I mean, if you want a railroad in the US, somehow that includes like 50,000 troops, you know? Yeah. And I think a larger goal of Dalton Road and, and for China is really just diversification. Like, right. you know, they've they've had concerns that the U.S. would try this kind of like decoupling containment thing in the past. And now that, you know, people are actually starting to make noise about it. Hey, it'd be good if China could diversify its exports from the U.S. to, you know, other countries. Uh, you know, if there's like a, a genuine U.S. naval blockade of China since like about 50% of China's trade comes through the South China Sea, which is why it's such an area of interest for China, you know, then, then they need those land routes across Central Asia to continue trading with Europe and, and Africa and so on. So, you know, there's also an eye to that, like, let's make sure we're connected to the world if the U.S. tries to cut us off. And I think what, like, uh, Western... on, I, I, uh, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, I think that's like part of like what Western media leaves out is the fact that there's so many willing participants in this project at this point, too. They don't highlight that like even these European nations are getting on board with like accepting Chinese technology and things like that. And that's kind of brushed under the rug or seen as like stupid decisions by like Western leaders like in the UK and France and stuff like that. So even when China is doing something, you know, they're contributing technology to a country that's behind even then they're still somehow vilified and, and to that point to the, the the western uh kind of propaganda against china i want to bring up 
three three myths. Uh, one, one of which I, I grew up with. I remember in high school, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. There's so it's only the South. One TV. Yeah, there's only one TV. But I, I remember hearing, and you can still find this, persistent claims of humanitarian crises in Tibet. That was like a big issue <laughs> at our school. So, and that's, and it's a myth and I'm not, I'm not uh, agreeing with it, but it's, it's something that if you look up, you know, if, if you, if you try to study China in America, you're going to get hit with that. There's Tibet. And then nowadays there is uh, these persistent claims that Hong Kong is, rep you know, representative of, of draconian policies by China. And then there's, that's number two. And then there's the claim that China is stealing intellectual property. Now, again, I'm not agreeing with any of these necessarily. I wanna give you a chance to uh, debunk uh, any or all of, of these three claims against China. Yeah, so Tibet definitely like, and I think Tibet was still kind of in vogue around 2008, you know, the Beijing Olympics, you would still hear about Tibet then it's basically fallen off the radar now because look, you know, like Tibet has developed, it's doing quite well and there's not really a story there anymore. So like you mentioned later, they pivoted. Um, there's Hong Kong and there's also Xinjiang, which is, you know, the, the, the Uyghur ethnic minority and Northwest China. And that's kind of like the new Tibet. Um, and, you know, that's been in the, the media, like in a full court press for the last couple of years. Right. Yeah, that's 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 I meant to mention that that's been one of the bigger, you know, propagandistic models. Yeah, so, yeah uh, please, actually, you could respond question. to that over over Tibet, actually. Like what what is wrong about what we're what what we're being taught about that? Well, I think I think the best place to start is you just look at some of the news articles about that region, like maybe five years ago. 2015, 2014. Um, and, you know, U.S. think tanks were talking about how, like, there was a growing danger of, like, you know, terrorism in that region and, you know, like, how might the U.S. come into play and how the Afghan war might destabilize Western China and things like that. And almost kind of written in a hopeful tone. Uh, but, you know, that a lot of the things they point out there, uh, you know, they're true. Like, in uh, 2014, there were major riots in the capital of Xinjiang, uh, Udumuchi, or Urumqi, I guess, in, in English. But, you know, they went on for days and about like 200 civilians were killed. And, you know, it was, it was terrible. And there were terror attacks all over China over the next couple of years. There was like a mass stabbing at a train station in South China, like very far away from Xinjiang as well, done by like some, you know, radicals. And... The, the imam of the largest mosque in China, Juma Tahir, was stabbed to death outside his own mosque uh, in 2015 as well. So, you know, there's like, it was, it was really bad. There were these incidents cropping up all over, you know, from like returning radicals from, you know, both Syria, which is actually a huge pipeline. Like, James, you, you're probably familiar with this, but, you know, there's just this massive pipeline of like Uyghurs going to Turkey through Malaysia and then ending up in Syria. That's why you have the Turkestan Islamic party hold up in Idlib right now. But a lot of these people, they do come back to China and, you know, they, 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 you know, end up sometimes participating in activities like that. So like with all those terror attacks, uh, you know, China is response is like, Hey, you know, we, we need to deal with this kind of extremism uh, because it's not only like, 
creating all of these terror attacks. Um, it's also pushing out like Chinese Islam. And I think this is never really reported, but Islam has been in China for, you know, like what, six, seven centuries, yeah, like yeah. much longer than it has in the West. And it's been around in China so long that it's kind of had developed its own like unique strains. Um, and one of those things, uh, and this was reported in NPR too, about like, you know, seven, eight years ago, but they're talking about how, how weird it is that China has female imams and how China has women only mosques. And those are in central China, which, you know, there are also a lot of Muslims in, in central China. Uh, and they, you know, they visited one of these mosques and say, oh, this is so good. And in the article, it also mentions that the Chinese government has been trying to promote more of these mosques, build more of them. And northwestern China, which is Xinjiang, and NPR noted, you know, they have been getting pushback from some of the more conservative-minded Muslims, you know, in China's northwest. But, you know, there, there are hints of this, like this kind of imported, uh, like different strain of Islam that, that's come more from like Saudi Arabia and China, and that's like in an internal conflict in Chinese Islam. So, you know, there's, that's kind of like the root cause of the, the unrest in Xinjiang. And, you know, what the, the West has done here is like, hey, you know, uh, China has a project aimed at de-radicalization and we want to portray that in the worst light possible. And, and to that, you know, they've recycled a lot of the old Tibetan claims. They've even lumped that in with some of the like Falun Gong claims about organ harvesting. But it's really like a throw up whatever you have against the wall and see what sticks. Like there's there's just so many claims that it's um, notes and shoes. Yeah, you can um, you can debunk one and then like two new ones pop up tomorrow. Um, yeah, well, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, I mean, in my opinion, it's not comparable to anything close to what the U.S. has done in the war on terror. I mean, there seems to be a difference in terms of the U.S. took the war on terror abroad. It looks like China is trying to deal with it uh, as an insular problem within their own territory, which I think anyone could agree that if you're going to have an idea of government uh, and, and, and sovereignty, they're going to have a right to uh, defend themselves internally, but I mean, are there aspects of it that are problematic to you? I mean, uh, there, there are, are, is, is there anything, what criticism would you have of China, if any, right now? So I think that, I don't know how much of this is a government thing, but maybe it is a government messaging thing, but you know, there are a lot of Chinese people that are, I would say pretty Islamophobic and, um, you know, South China Morning Post has reported on this. Like there was this guy who was burning a Koran on the internet in China and he was jailed for it because China has some very strict hate speech laws. You know, they, they take down comments that are, you know, Islamophobic on, on Weibo and stuff. But, you know, there's still a lot of people in China that think that, uh, you know, Muslims are like a favored minority. They get too many benefits and, you know, there's a lot of resentment there. And I think the government probably needs to deal with that in, in stronger terms because, something that also contributes to like this unrest is that like, you know, uh, Uyghurs travel all across China there. There's a lot of them in like the major cities as well. And I think sometimes, you know, they, they face like some discrimination from like other Chinese people, not necessarily like blatantly or officially, but like, you know, it's there. And I think that's something that the Chinese government probably needs to spend more time addressing. Um, and then, you know, that's really outside of policy, but like they, they protest things like, you know, why is there a halal canteen in every single university, right? Like things like that, 
even upset some netizens. And I think the, the government probably needs to like, you know, spend a little bit more time there. Uh, I, you know, it's, that's, that's a troubling thing to see. And, and you know, I, I, I think that's something the government should spend more time on. So that's, I guess, I don't know if you would call it a criticism, but that's a, that's a worry I have with uh, like the, the current like policy towards de-radicalization. Could you, would you say that, I mean, even beyond that, like there's a lot of issues I have, which is one, the United States State Department suddenly giving a shit about Muslims anywhere. And two, the foreign influence that was like key to the early days of what happened in the region has really been wiped out. And as you brought up, like uh, the East Turkestan types, you know, you see the Turkish flag in blue. Those are those guys, and a lot of them are in Syria. And I don't think that people quite appreciate, like, oh, no, China was responding to something legitimate, much in a way a Western country would, too, if they find out there's suddenly, and ISIS had posted videos that they had cells within Western China or Northwest China, and they had threatened the Chinese government, you know, so I don't think it. I don't feel like their response, which is honestly fucking send people to school, is any like in any way comparable to the U.S. response of like get an autistic kid to tell on his friends at the mosque. Yeah, and so I another thing about the the East Turkestan people. So they had this magazine and Jamestown Institute, which is one of these U.S. think tanks, like discussed the the contents of it and like it's some pretty serious stuff because so there are a a bunch of different types of Muslims in China. Another group is called the Hui and they're also Muslim. Um, And this like Turkestan group, they said like the, the Hui have been the enemies of the Uyghur for 300 years, you know? And so they also need to be eliminated, uh, which is, you know, I guess it relates back to historic conflicts. The two groups have had, but you know, this is like a a full on ethno-nationalist project in addition to like the religion aspect, right? Like it, it links it, it draws its roots from the eighties in which a lot of, you know, Uyghur intellectuals went to Turkey and they're inspired by like the kind of Panturanism, gray wolves line of thought. Like actually the, the founder of TIP, he was friends with the founder of the gray wolves too. So, you know, there is that kind of like linkage there too. No, no, at that, at that time, it was also the early years of Erdogan and the Islamists before they went to prison. Right, did have an influence. Hey, Feyong, another uh, back to these myths because a lot of the people listening to this show probably (laughs) the assholes. I mean, well, look, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I I I don't know very much about China besides what my nationalist uh, propagandistic media has told me. I have made efforts to look into it more, but. Um, a claim we consistently hear both from the left wing and right wing of our political structure here is that uh, China is stealing intellectual property. Um, How do you respond to that? I mean, I'm assuming you can debunk that because I've never really bought it, but like, how, how do you respond to that? So I, I won't say that like there's no intellectual property stuff because that happens everywhere. Like between U.S. companies, um, U.S. companies have spied on Huawei too. Like uh, European companies have spied on U.S. companies. Like that corporate espionage is just like a fact of life. It it right. just goes everywhere. But 
specific to China, like I think a lot of these claims also link into what so-called tech transfer. And they're like, oh, the Chinese government is making U.S. companies transfer their technology to China in order to have access to the Chinese market. And that one, I think, is really stupid because, like, say, General Motors, for example, they actually have a really big market presence in China. Like, honestly, the Chinese market is what has kept General Motors relevant for, for like, let's say the last decade. And so General Motors manufactures a lot of their cars in China because, you know, they're for the Chinese market. And so to do that, General Motors needs to transfer factory technology to China to build the factory in China, right? And they have to teach the workers there how to use that technology so they can make those cars. So that is technology transfer. And to call that intellectual property theft is just ridiculous. Like that's, that's how you have to operate in order to manufacture in China. There is always some degree of tech transfer. And to call that like forced tech transfer, well, look, the company, if they're really worried about that, then, then don't build your factory in China, right? Like that's, that's just, if you build your factory in Bangladesh, then that's a tech transfer to Bangladesh. So I, I think that is like the silliest part of that claim, but just general, like, other intellectual property theft, that's just, I say that it's just par for the course. It's happening everywhere in the world. I don't think China necessarily stands out. I think it, um, other than like, I guess China just having a lot more people. Uh, so. And also being, being a lot better with uh, managing some of these things. I mean, art, artificial intelligence is, uh, I mean. Uh, yeah, and some of that is just like, look, a lot of Chinese people come to the US pay a lot of money for like these the colleges we have they get their phds and stuff and sometimes they can't get green cards to stay here so look what can i do then i got to go back to china and you know they did learn a lot of stuff in the u.s and they take that knowledge and you know they start a company in china um you know that you could people have started calling that like intellectual property theft right yeah like the, no that stuff. seems like a, a natural osmosis of, of- right like if you want to keep these people, give them green cards, they'll probably stay in the US. Like if you don't want to give them green cards, then what are they going to do? They're going to go back home. Well, so, they'll also yeah, I, I, I see a lot of these things as really just taking normal like phenomena and, and trying to make it like scary and bad and unique to China when, you know, it really isn't. Absolutely. Yeah, I that, think that if I can go, I think one thing you touched on that's important is um, the fact that, you know what, these companies make these agreements because they want to do business in China. And as far as like the whole libertarian argument goes and that the company has the right to make its own decisions, correct? If they choose to sign over a controlling stake of their China operations to the Chinese government, that's a cost of doing business. And that leads to shared technology, which most people don't seem to understand. That's why Facebook isn't allowed in fucking China, you know, because they don't have anything China actually wants out of their technology. Yeah, and Facebook could be in China. Like the reason they left is like they didn't want to comply with Chinese rules. Um, that's the same thing with Google. So like, look, if you don't want to follow the laws of the country, then like you have no right to operate there. Like. Tomorrow, Google and Facebook could be back in the Chinese market. All they'd have to do is just comply with local regulations. Yeah, well, apparently Zuck asking Xi to name his baby didn't work. And, you know, on that note, Vietnam is even considering banning Facebook now because, you know, they've made requests to Facebook, uh, like, to take down, like, certain things they consider fake news. And, and Facebook is saying no. 
Um, you know, and we have our own issues with Facebook here. We've got our own like problems with, you know, like right wing groups spreading fake news on Facebook here as well that the government sometimes tries to do things about. But look, Vietnam has that same situation and they're they're fighting with Facebook about it, too. And it it's a it's a little scary to think that this one U.S. Silicon Valley company is basically like almost its own state actor. It's that big and it's that wealthy. Right. That Vietnam basically has to negotiate with it, like almost like an equal. Yeah, that even I mean, that even happens in Western countries at this point. That's like what Ireland is. So I think that'd be like, honestly, I think this is a good point to transition into like, let's talk about the differences of economies, because this really highlights it. The the whole intellectual, intellectual property claims and all that bullshit really highlights like a lot of the complaints about the Chinese market itself which obviously American investors complain is too insulated or whatever, despite relying on China for the last 30 years, they still say it's too insulated because they won't let them make millions there. So I, I want to talk real quick about like, um, you know, obviously Deng Xiaoping opened up a lot to Western trade, right? So what do you think the changes have been made since like Deng now to like Xi as a really like figurehead of the party? What kind of changes do you think he's making both to no, i would actually like to challenge that go ahead i would actually like to challenge that first one because i also see this among like the u.s left a lot like there's a lot of focus around Deng Xiaoping, and he's kind of seen like as the guy who who really made the call to like change china you know and and a lot of people might consider him a revisionist but honestly he did not do that much like a lot of the reforms he made i think were were very necessary, but also had nothing to do with capitalism or privatization. Like a lot of his reforms were for farmers and they were really good for farmers because one thing China was doing before him was that uh, there were heavy price controls on crops, but that was all that was doing was subsidizing urbanization and urban workers at the expense of farmers who you know, were, were really getting the short end of the stick there. So Deng removed those and you know, farmers started to do to do much better. Like they were able to, to get more money for their crops. And, uh, you know, that helped my family a lot because we're, uh, my mom's family, sweet potato farmers, my dad's family grows corn. So it was really good for them. Um, and that actually was one of the causes of Tiananmen. Like the, these students, many of which came from urban backgrounds were also somewhat upset that farmers were, you know, getting wealthier than they were. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't really see that as like a problem. And Deng, when he was opening up, it was really limited to specific special economic zones. Like, you know, Guangzhou is one of them and Shanghai is another. But I think the major change that happened in China was actually in 2001. And throughout the 90s, China was negotiating, you know, WTO accession uh, during the Clinton administration. And... The premier of China at the time, Zhu Rongji, he, you know, he was involved in a very long negotiation there about like what China would have to give up to join the World Trade Organization. And when he came back, uh, he was actually called a traitor by a lot of Chinese people because they thought he had given up too much. Um, and so that was a very controversial agreement. But, you know, in the end, as you know, China joined the World Trade Organization. And I think that was really the biggest gamble and the biggest change in uh recent Chinese history, because that involved a lot of privatization. A lot of people at state-owned enterprises actually were laid off because of that, 
you know, not because of Dang. Like this is 15, 20 years after Dang. But, you know, that was like the biggest change in China. And it was a big gamble at the time. And I think it would be fair to wonder, like, you know, is that going to turn China toward capitalism? Is China going to, you know, leave the socialist path then? But I think what we've seen in the last 10 years has has been really reassuring on that front. But I would say that is really like the the hinge point uh, for China. And a lot of Western leftists don't know anything about it. You know, (laughs) they're all focused on Deng and, and they know nothing about like what happened then. I can understand that. I can, and I can understand, like, yeah, I get the arguments you make for him too, because as you said, his opening up wasn't as severe as, like, say, the WTO types in the early 2000s tried to open up. And obviously, Xi has taken a lot of uh, Deng Xiaoping thought into, like, his considerations, right? But, and he knows the limits of opening up, which I think actually brings us nicely into. Um, Let's talk about the type of economy China has, because obviously people debate over whether this is a socialist state or not. And what would you say? I mean, how would you describe the planned economy of China and the benefits of it? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not a fully planned economy. There are there is some like market elements to it, but like the it's still governed by like the the five year plans and like the targets are set there, the areas of focus and you know, um, you know, the state-owned ep- enterprises are are still a pretty big, powerful force in the Chinese okay. economy. Well, I got you for a sec. Why don't you describe yeah. what a state-owned enterprise is? Yeah, so um, it's basically just like uh, like uh, the oil firms, electricity, utilities, uh, mining, power um, production. I'm assuming. Yeah, power production. Yeah. Like basically, critical national infrastructure all of those are, are controlled by the state like that's not n- none of that was privatized the big banks are all state-owned as well like that's why they all have such generic names like china construction bank <laughs> china farmers bank like all of those are state-owned um so basically like you know the the critical industries uh, are all under state control and you know there there are some private companies that are obviously pretty big like alibaba is one right baidu is another um jd Ten cent, but you know ultimately, the state is still in charge of those companies. Like private companies aren't allowed to go wild and basically like lobby the state, um, or even control the state like they are in the West. Um, I think. Are you guys familiar with Ant Financial? Yeah, I am. Jake might not be. So Ant Financial was going to be the world's largest IPO. It was going to be like the world's largest stock offering on the Hong Kong Shanghai market. of Alibaba. Yeah. Owned by like, you know, China's richest man, like Jack Ma, right? So that was, you know, there was a lot of hype for that. Um, And it was, it was going to be like, you know, big money making event for Jack Ma. And all of a sudden, the Chinese government just told them to suspend the IPO. (laughs) And they said, like, look, uh, we looked over at financial structure and we think you are a systemic risk to the economy. Like you are so over leveraged, you're going to be giving out so many loans that you don't have the capital to back up that we think this company is a risk to create like a financial crisis. And we said, like, you know, you need to basically rework your entire uh, lending structure if you want to IPO. And, And that was that. Like there was no... 
nothing Jack Ma could do, you know? Like, yeah. I, I can't imagine that ever happening in the US. Like, Bezos wants to IPO some spinoff of Amazon or Google wants to do an IPO for Alphabet. And then the US government is like, nope, you can't do that. I like, mean, that's, Trump approved like major telecom mergers in his time. Yeah, like T-Mobile, AT or T-Mobile Sprint, right? Like, yeah. And then AT&T that got over the finish line over something else, right? Yeah. Yeah. But there's basically no space for these Chinese companies to start lobbying the state and be like, no, 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 no. How about, how about we fund your opponent's reelection, you know, and then we get someone favorable to us in government and then they'll vote for, you know, they'll vote for our merger, right? Like that just doesn't happen in China. Well, I think one of um, the most recent, like, okay, one of the most recent incidents that really struck out a stark difference was uh, the COVID response nationally here and in Wuhan and China, you know, um, the way that Wuhan handled things where there was an extended lockdown, but also, you know, benefits, essentials, jobs were all secured and guaranteed to the most part. Um, whereas our country, you know, you live here, you've seen our utter failures and even the states like New York and my own state, Michigan, where we've done these extensive lockdowns, you see that now we're like, again, the top spots in the country. So what do you think that about China's system made their, gave them the ability to have such a drastically different response? And, you know, what are the pros of that response? Because obviously the people in Wuhan are out having parties and wave pools, man. Yeah. So it, you know, it does, this is where elements of the planned economy or really state control of the economy come into play because China was able to go out to a bunch of factories and say like, Hey, look, you're going to be making masks now. You know, we'll provide you the equipment. Um, We'll teach you how to use it, but you're going to be making masks now, you know, stop making whatever it is you're making. You're going to make masks now. You're going to make ventilators now. And that's how China was able to basically re-gear and make up for like a, a pretty early shortage of PPE uh, in Wuhan. And so, you know, they were able to create so many masks, they had a surplus that they could start like, you know, sending abroad as well. And that's why you saw China like donating masks to all those countries because they were able to basically retool overnight, um, you know, a bunch of their industry to, to start producing the necessary things. Whereas in the US, like, you know, we had a mass shortage forever. Like I asked friends in China to send me masks, um, you know, and I, I got like about 800 of them myself and I sent them out to some orgs here, actually to, to your friend, Jeff in, uh, in Michigan too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I sent him like 300, but you know, that, that was where we were at in like March. People were asking for masks, like donations abroad and people were sewing masks because, you know, the U S government couldn't simply tell like say G or something like, Hey, stop what you're doing and making masks. Like there's no, there's no mechanism for that kind of control uh in the u.s the fucked up part is that there was a mechanism for like emergency production acts but they refused to take that whereas well yeah the u.s US has the the u.s has the defense production act but trump refused to use it uh it it, but it actually it is definitely possible to do that um but in fdr style yeah, and, and Biden could very well do that. I mean, if it, I mean, right now we're seeing, I mean, I don't have much faith in Biden for anything, but 
we're seeing a huge, huge upsurge here, like really specifically within the last two weeks, it's getting really bad. It would not surprise me if by the time Biden takes office, it's gotten so bad that basically we have to do some kind of like emergency authorization like that. But it is, I mean, regardless, it's beyond pathetic. It's shameful. I mean, in my opinion, it's negligent homicide. What has gone on here in terms of dealing with the, with, with COVID. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And a lot of it, I think is just fatigue. Like people got tired of these kind of half-assed rolling lockdowns. Now it's the holidays. Look, it's been, you know, the better part of a year here. And I think there just gets a point. People are just kind of like, fuck it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out and get a haircut and go out and, and get a steak or something. So, you know, there, there are a lot of factors going on and you can't really completely blame people for thinking that way. Cause honestly, like the responsibility is on the government to, to have this under control in the first place. Like I, 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 I got a steak while getting a haircut. <laughs> uh, the other day no i'm kidding but yeah no it's 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 hard and it's it's a complicated situation yeah, it's, locking people down need to work lockdown. too you know sure. like there's well, no people absolutely. need to yeah. yeah but that's what china is doing so much better i mean that and that's what is required is you have to have uh you have to have um money given to not only employees but employers you have to have that income supplemented you also have to have money given to creditors so that they're not defaulting on loans it, it, it's a it's a it's a vast thing that must be done in order to shut the economy down completely which is what is required with something like this you have to just basically shut everything down for a few months and that's what china did essentially yeah and they did that. So like the spread would be contained to like one city, one province, which I guess is kind of a different problem than the US where we we would have to do like a, a nationwide shutdown. But in China, I think it was basically just like Hunan province that had the brunt of like the full lockdown, whereas like places in other like more remote region of China, you know, like factories there were still operating, even if people were staying inside. So I guess that is like, but that's also like just why you need to get it under control in the first place. Like by the time we started taking it seriously, we had it like in basically every state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's absurd. Uh, Exactly. What happened here is there was no strategic testing and quarantining from the beginning, which had that been done, we could have potentially not had to lock down the entire economony. But yeah, anyway. I mean, we'll look at New York right now, which is re-locked down with basically, you know, people going bankrupt, benefits ending, um, no like eviction protections ending and things like that. And when you look at somewhere like Wuhan, we're like, oh, hey, these people are locked in their apartments for three months, but they don't seem worried that they won't have this apartment. They don't seem worried that they won't return to normalcy as soon as the situation is solved. Whereas our hotspots like New York, you know, we did like these phase shutdowns and flights were still coming in and shit like that. And China, I mean, China cut off rail lines into Wuhan like very early. And what, that took them like, what, three months to finally lift that blockade? Yeah. And um, so an interesting tidbit on that. So, you know, they made the decision to lock down January 20th, right? Or 23rd, something like that. Yeah, I think. But that actually was the most extreme option. Like 
that was by no means a unanimous decision. Like some doctors are saying like, Hey, we don't need, you know, that severe lockdown. Like, you know, we could get by with like a partial lockdown or something. Um, and it was actually like Xi Jinping made the call like, you know, we're going to go with the most conservative thing. We're going to go to a full lockdown, but you know, it was an unknown disease in, in January 20th. We, we knew some things we didn't know that much, but you know, like they, they made the call to go with the most aggressive possible like way of containing it. And, and it worked. Uh, yeah. And I think that's the primary difference to highlight is that China, although they're home to a lot of capital, they don't respond to the whims of capital the way United States leaders do. They don't do things like ask Elon Musk if you know he can find his lost ventilators at the Los Angeles airport. You know they don't have to like beg GM to make masks, whereas China has like the state power to direct like a concerted effort to to tackle a problem, which they've done with multiple problems in the past, whether it be poverty or anything like that. And we don't yeah. have the capacity to do that. We refuse because we're so beholden to the capitalist class. Whereas, I mean, you've described it to me personally, and I'd like you to describe it here a little bit. What is the relationship of the, the Chinese state to this, you know, capitalist class that has grown in the last 30 to 40 years in the country? Yeah, there's, you know, there's so many examples of like the Chinese state showing who's in charge. Like before this anti-IPO thing, there was also Anbang Group, which made a lot of foreign acquisitions. And basically that CEO was was arrested. And basically like, you know, you need to stop what you're doing. And they gave an order, told Anbang to start selling stuff abroad. Like, I think they were the group that bought the Astoria Hotel in New York. And that was one of the things when they were on their buying spree. But like, you know, China is not afraid to rein in like these these um, CEOs whenever they feel necessary. And I think that's very important. Like it's, well, one, it's also a signaling mechanism to, to other companies too. Like, look, there is, there's a small box that you can play in and you're free to move around within that. But, you know, there are definitely limits on what you are allowed to do. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how China's run. So I'm guessing you're not uh, an anarcho-capitalist uh, based on your, your uh, we, we've interviewed a few of those on here and sometimes we get into more fundamental ideological <laughs> questions like that. And uh, I'm, I'm taking it from what you've said that you believe that a strong, a strong central state is the best way to, to run, to run a country. Yeah, absolutely. Like, if you don't have a strong central state, then, you know, capital will run your country. And if you're not a big country, you know, foreign capital will also come and run your country. And right. I, I don't see how anyone would prefer that unless you're one of those foreign capitalists. And right. that even reflects on the China's partners in the global South. They have the same feeling. If you listen to them the majority of them think they think this, this infrastructure is beneficial and they don't see it as like a hostile act as when like, say, uh, I don't know, an American telecom company starts setting up all their wireless towers. Yeah, like Ethiopia, I think is a good example because like, you know, China built the railway um, and they're training Ethiopians to, to run it. And that's going to be like, you know, the contract say we'll complete that within two years. A bunch of Ethiopians went to China for like the training uh, and they come back and then it'll be fully like owned and, and run by like Ethiopians, which, you know, that's the idea. Like there wouldn't, 
it would be very different if like China just like, you know, we're just going to operate these railroads for you, like in perpetuity. But like it's China is actually very willing to, to do tech transfer itself. Like, look, hey, we'll show you how to do this. We'll show you how to build these trains. We'll show you how to like, you know, make these things. There's they don't really have any like worries about that. You know, you never see China complain that Africa is stealing their IP or anything like that. Yeah, and I think that touches on, let's touch on like two different uh, parts as we go out here. Uh, one, I want to talk, uh, like we said, uh, let's return to the planned economy for a second. Um, I think to me, in my opinion, it's shown, especially in, during the COVID crisis, as uh, the Western Anglo countries, like say the US, UK, Australia, and to Germany to some extent too, they've managed to freeze out even like their European cousins and things like that, right? And China, like these people accuse China of nefarious practices, but you know, they'll call it soft power, right? But don't you think like, especially in the EU where there's a big argument over of like how much influence China should have in the market. uh, Don't you think that like these arguments, you know, they're kind of spurious because at some point, like, especially if the EU is not depending on the US, they're going to need China. And I think the important thing to recognize is China is not a shitty partner as people portray it to be. Yeah. And and there are internal EU dynamics here, like uh, with Greece during the height of the Eurozone crisis, like Varoufakis had a deal with China for China to help to buy a bunch of Greek bonds, to, you know, help prop up the Greek economy. And they had a deal all ready to go. And then China called the Greece and said, look, we can't go through with this deal. We got a call from Berlin and they told us that uh, we're not allowed to make any deals with the Greeks until Brussels is finished with Greece. And so they had to call that off. But, you know, like that's, <laughs> there's a, there's like kind of like a, a mini Monroe doctrine there too, right? Like uh, Germany in particular is like, look, yeah. you know, they, they don't like China and Europe because they see like, you know, these countries belong to us uh, and we get the first say before and they get to deal with China. They never treat like the swarthier races as like full Europeans, you know, look at how yeah. uh, Italy during the like COVID pigs, pandemic. right? You know, that's what they came up for them. Yeah. Italy during the COVID pandemic, you know, uh, Brussels basically said implement austerity yeah and and, and they 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 did a fair share of blaming too it's like look this is your own damn fault because your country sucks like yeah they... yeah exactly you guys all the austerity we made you do ruined your hospitals and now you're losers yeah thank you but yeah like that was the the response by the western countries right it was austerity on like the southern european and even like bolsonaro who thinks he's a white guy you know he got froze out and I think it shows that, like, dude, these countries see basically, like, the poorer European countries just as much as, like, colonies of the European Union as they do, like, uh, proxies across the globe. And, like, clearly the Anglo uh, power structure really still holds up, which is quite shocking. And that's why it ended up being China and Cuba who ended up providing the most aid to uh, Italy and Spain and countries like that. So I think that it's like, how can you even have faith in the U.S. when we like refuse or even the European libs who like a a lot of the Joe Biden crowd, you know, they would kiss them if they could. 
you know, but these people are the ones like denying medical supplies and emergency funding to their own supposed like union members, right? And China steps in and is offering like donations of PPE and medical supplies. So how does that reflect on the EU as a whole? Because this is supposed to be, you know, the organization that makes sure there's never another European war and that makes us all brothers. And that that rhetoric seems to be out the window. Yeah, that's, you know, that's really a bygone era. And (laughs) ironically, like Biden and this Brexit issue and like his hilariously his, I guess, heartfelt Irish identity is going to also draw a wedge there in our very special relationship. not Irish. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. But um, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of fault lines in, in Europe. Like obviously with Brexit, it's a very obvious one, but there's there's a lot of internal tensions there too, and it's just not they're not really in the right headspace to be the U.S.'s willing allies. I, I think for for the the next couple of years. Um, yeah, though the thing is, I don't know that they're in the headspace to be allies with anybody anymore. But I think what you see is like, oh, the turn of this like neoliberal chaos accidentally ends up leading to like hyper-nationalism and like proto you know like this kind of like crypto fascism and stuff like that among the european parties and the west doesn't take any responsibility for what that through like what they've done you know and i see um i see that happening and then people you know these people get surprised like oh why are they taking aid from china but what would you say i mean like it seems to me that uh, putin has said it too and Xi isn't quite as open about it, but I, do you think this signals like a real lack of faith in the quote unquote liberal democracy in that process as like countries like China rise and they offer equitable solutions to people? Yeah. And, you know, that's, it's going to continue like the, the regional comprehensive economic partnerships, now the world's largest trading bloc that was just signed last weekend. China is now talking about joining like the remnant TPP that the, the U S yeah, bailed on. That. Right. Like there's a China is like actively courting a lot of countries. You know, there's this narrative that after COVID, a lot of countries are going to hate China and whatnot. And, you know, maybe that is true for like some people who, who blame China for the pandemic, but leadership wise, look, it's the world's uh, largest growing economy. Uh, if I want my country to recover and get out of like the pandemic doldrums, like I got to be working with China and every country seems to have internalized that except the U S and Australia. But you know, that's, that's just uh, the economic reality. And I think we're going to see a lot of news on that front. Yeah, I agree. Jake, did you have a question? Are you there? Yeah, no, I'm here. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I've just been enjoying listening to this now I, I i don't have a question right now okay i just wanted to make sure we didn't have an outsider perspective you wanted to stick in i i just think that um i especially think over the last couple of years now with this election particularly and all of this toss-up afterwards that and 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 france and the uk and brexit and everything like that all of like the liberal like haha gotcha traps to like try and make people look foolish by being like, oh, you won't vote for this nationalist, you know? Like those things have failed and seemingly shaken the faith in like a Western democracy. 
Whereas, like, dude, we have one party here. You know, we have a Republican Party, and then we have the other Republican Party that's blue. So what, I mean, people argue about, like, this one-party state thing, but at the same time, Xi Jinping is, like, at the highest approval rating of any Chinese president in decades. And the anti-corruption drives and stuff like that seem very popular. Can you explain how that stuff is perceived? Yeah, so that... Look, there's it was portrayed in like Western media as like, oh, he's just eliminating enemies or like whatever. Saudis, but yeah. it's so necessary. It was getting so out of control under the Who era. Like so there's this phenomenon called naked officials. And so that was like a like a party official. He moved all his family abroad, move all his assets abroad. So, you know, he's just basically by himself, like quote unquote naked in China. And that's basically just like, you know, whenever I want to just bail to like the US or something call myself a dissident, get a nice cushy retirement, uh, you know, and I've squirreled away all this like bribe money and stuff to, to foreign countries. Like they had stuff like that going on all the time. Um, and that was just because like, look, they, they opened up like the standards to join the communist party in China. And there's like some record membership and like new people joining during the who era, which initially was seen as a good thing, but look, like you got to screen your members because stuff like this happens. And so that's also part of the crackdown. And there's this hilarious Bloomberg article talking about how bureaucrats were complaining about Xi. And, you know, there's some really telling quotes in there because there's like, oh, you know, my job used to be so chill. I used to just come in, <laughs> drink some tea and then loaf around and go home. And now I'm expected to do work. So, you know, that's, it's not just anti-corruption. It's also like making sure that the bureaucrats and the, the, the officials are, are competent and able to do their job. Like that's, it's part of institution building too. And I think that's something that's pretty under reported that like, she has a very big focus on making sure like Chinese institutions are strong that like, it's not just about like informal, like relations or whatever that, you know, we have good formal processes to get things done and, and, things run smoothly and people have trust in the government and like that's the stuff that you see in action with the pandemic like if you hadn't done all that before like it's great to contrast that to the outcome of the earthquake in 2008 where you know some of the schools just completely collapsed just like due to shoddy construction and because people local officials have been siphoning off construction money like it's things like that that really made this anti-corruption campaign this institution building so necessary for China. And that's why it's so popular because everyone knew it had to be done. And that's, you know, that's why like uh, it's been his number one focus because in opinion polls in China, what are your number one and two priorities? Number one is anti-corruption. Number two is environment. And those have been like the two things that she has been focused on the most domestically. Like they're very responsive to what people say should the, pri- the priority should be. Yeah, I agree. And I think that like the, the fact that it's becoming so efficient, it's showing this growth that can't be rivaled in the United States. And it's clearly from state intervention that I don't know that what what benefits do we reap out of like this society here? Because most of what you do here is expressed through consumption, which honestly you can do just the same in China. You know, so it's it's hard to argue against like a one-party system when you already live in one that's basically it's not even a majority consent system you know whereas like and and they don't deliver any 
visible results. There is no people being lifted out of poverty. There is no housing programs. There's no universal education. There's yeah, no but life. we have we have freedom, Jim. We have freedom. Yeah, to buy shit. I can go buy a fucking Gucci bag <laughs> in China. Yeah, exactly. We have a cons- we have we have consumer. Uh, we have a cult of we have a cult of consumerism here, essentially. But yeah, it decides your like cultural bias. You know, you like what what you consume makes you a good person here. And as far as that, that is how like freedom is measured. So, I mean, like what I think we need, you know, what, let's touch on before we go, like there's a different standard of freedom in socialist countries. You know, what are the basic supplies you under socialist country? Things like housing and healthcare. I mean, would you care to expand on that? Uh, sorry, healthcare and what? Uh, well, like healthcare and housing and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so these are things that's... These are things seen yeah. as human rights in socialist countries, right? They're not seen like that here, whereas the right to consume is basically your, your yeah. free expression. So housing is like a huge difference between China and the U.S. because like, you know, the, the most people just own their home um, outright. Like it's just, there's not like this like cycle of renting and mortgage. Like, you know, most renters in China are like, say like a migrant worker, like I live in this place, you know, I work in this other city for like a couple of months out of the year. So I'll rent a place there and then I go back home. Um, but yeah, there's just not this system of like a mortgage and renting uh, that we have here in the U S most people just own their home. Like most Chinese millennials, they leave college and just kind of buy a home. And I just, you know, I own a place. Uh, so the home ownership rate in China is like 93% or something. It's crazy high. And healthcare is also like, so there, there is like universal health care, and that's actually pretty recent because, you know, China is still a developing country. The parts of the country are still really poor. And I think the gaps there are really just due to like infrastructure and coverage because, look, there's some remote places that don't necessarily have hospitals and like the most you can get is like traveling clinics and stuff like that. So there's still a ways to go there, but, you know, they're on the right track. But healthcare is also just cheap in China. They don't have like our crazy arcane system of insurance and, you know, coverage and deductibles and all that so i got strep throat in china i went to the hospital you just wait like in you know i just went to like counter i told them my symptoms i got a counter and i was able to say like an ent specialist immediately there's not like some primary care doctor refers me to some other thing just uh, i got a prescription and i paid probably like five usd for the visit and the antibiotics and you know that was it like there's there's no insurance card to look at. You just pay up front out of pocket and it's, you know, pretty cheap for like even a foreigner. That's that, that's, I mean, that's a better system at it, at where it creates less GDP though. I didn't want to point that out. Like our insurance thing generates so much GDP here. Right. Do you really want to give that up? You you mentioned that like a lot, like there are large parts of China that don't have, access to healthcare. I mean, do you, do you, does that belie to you the argument that, that Chinese healthcare is not arcane? I mean, do you, do you, do you see that as a, as, as a problem that stands in the way of arguing that, that China has a more advanced healthcare system? I mean, I think for a developing country, um, and for a country that, you know, has like per capita GDP so much below the U.S., like I, it's definitely a testament to like, you know, what socialism can do. And and it's improving every year. Right. Like the, the trend bars on that are 
are very good. Whereas in the U.S., you know, I don't know if there's even a positive trend. It's either flat or declining in terms of like people with healthcare access. Right? Like, you know, you you scroll on Twitter, I see like so many GoFundMe's for for healthcare things like here, right? Like, oh right, we're moving to a Go a, like healthcare by GoFundMe system here, right? And that's that's not progress at all. Like, we're moving backwards. Yeah, no, we have a we have a death cult here in America. That's a yeah, I think that's something too. Like, if you really compare it, you can't get proper health care in most urban areas in this country, let alone rural areas where there's like a free clinic that's open once a month, you know. So to hold them to our standards, we don't really hit those standards either because most people in like inner cities and things like that don't actually have health, you know, access to affordable health care. If they work, they don't have access to affordable health care. True. I, 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 I'm not, I would not argue with that. And, and like, uh, like Fayong said, I mean, this is a country of what, 1.5 billion people now? Uh, imagine our country trying to implement the, uh, this country can't even implement fucking infrastructure for 150 million people. Whereas you have China like building, you know, 12 track train stations in 24 hours and shit. And a, a freeway project here takes two years. Like, I just see that, like, the direction of resources is so much clearer if you just watch how they do things. And the direction of labor is so much more organized. And I think part of that's obviously, like, our shitty American individualism that fucks us up. Right. Yeah, we'd, ra- we'd rather starve to death uh, with with some badge of individualism on us here than than uh than anything else oh even I mean, something as simple as masks it's fucking like turned down because it's like, right yeah, i don't great example like obligation to like the greater community great example I, I i think the mask thing is possibly one of the best uh iconic symbols of american ideology i, I can think of uh yeah. the, the fact that so many people are not willing to even accept the most basic tenet of collectivism in, in wearing a mask. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and I mean, fuck, how are masks treated in Asia? Fayon can answer that one. I, fucking how yeah, I mean, there's... Like, even before the pandemic, you see, like, people just kind of wearing masks sometimes, like, you know, I don't there's know. It's people here who wear thing. masks. Yeah. yeah it, hey, guys, so I do need to drop but, you know, it's been a great conversation um, and, you know, um, happy to be on. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming and we'll have you back again. We'll get into some more topics about China because Jake's yeah. going to get owned. <laughs> owned? Right. I'm, not, I'm not oppositional, man. Uh, we're going to let you go, Fayong. But thank you so much for, for joining us, man. That was really yeah. illuminating. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to have you back another time. Uh, that was a really cool interview i i liked i mean that was that was informational and educational i like having 
uh, someone like that who really knows what they're talking about, talking about a country that there's probably no bigger uh, nexus point of uh, misinformation and propaganda from the U.S. government than as applies to China. Yeah, I think we'll definitely have to look into having Fei Yang back because he's a good guest. He has a lot of perspective on things that Westerners don't quite see. And even the Westerners, like the Chinese sources in Western media, don't really reflect on what what he sees, which is mostly based on, you know, what's happening in China instead of at the NAD meetings. But I think the uh, I mean, we didn't spend that much time on on COVID, but I mean, I do think it's probably one of the most important differences right now. And I think given that we're approaching, you know, Thanksgiving weekend here, of course, by the time we release this episode, it'll probably be past Thanksgiving, but nah. still be still before Christmas. This goes tomorrow. <laughs> it goes tomorrow. OK, yeah, I'm but but really? OK, cool. Yeah. But, you know, this is a huge this is a serious issue. I mean, we have uh, basically uh, an out of control uh, pandemic right now. And, and uh, you know, yes, it is. The mortality rate is under two percent. Um, this is not like Ebola, absolutely, but it's an incredibly infectious and it's not a disease. It's not a virus you want. Um, if you look into what actually happens when you get COVID, it basically affects your lungs so horribly that your lungs start producing excess inflammation fluid and you basically drown, suffocate in, in your own lungs, which is not a death I would wish upon anyone, including Donald Trump. So I think it's time to really start taking, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, no matter what your ideology is, I think it's time to start taking this more seriously and to drop some of these conspiracy theories and start really taking seriously the fact that we, we have a virus on the loose here that is probably gonna end up killing over half a million people in, in the US. And, and here's why I wanted to bring up China on that topic tonight, as it's kind of like surging in the U.S. again. I wanted to highlight that even the states like New York and my own state, Michigan, that took very restrictive measures in the beginning, failed to offer things like obviously the the small bon- uh, small business bailout. Right. You know, that was kind of shafted by a lot of larger corporations um unemployment for a lot of people state by state has been a mess you're seeing like foreclosures and evictions at a a record rate unemployment's you know like i said it's at a record rate you know as much as these claims are being shut down the people who are actually unemployed are still at record highs and i think that there's something to be said about china and not just an initial lockdown, but a full government effort to revamp the way like everything from deliveries to essentials are delivered. Sure. And I mean, China had pork stockpiles ready for like events like this. I can't imagine a more fundamental reason. This is why government was invented. Right. The purpose of government is when they're a pandemic or some Something like this is making it to where we simply cannot conduct the, the, the normal economic transactions that we normally and, conduct. This is what 
government is for. I'm not like a constitutionalist or anything, but I feel like this falls under like your right to life. Sure. As far absolutely. As I, I, right. I absolutely agree with that. Life, I'm, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, none of which you have if you you don't have health and you die from a, a disease you could have avoided. Um, you don't have liberty if you're fucking stuck under like these restrictions that are basically arbitrary. And you don't well, have I mean, pursuit this of is, happiness because nobody's pursuing shit right now. This, this is like I said when during the interview. I, I can't think of a better symbol for the, the kind of basic uh, individualist versus collectivist argument that's going on in the U.S. that to me is just so outrageously flawed and ridiculous that I don't even really know how to put it into words. Um, we, we do not have, nor will we ever have, an individualist society because we live in a collective. It's literally the definition of a society. Right. And right, right now we are there are a lot of people who are acting in very bad faith. There are people that are clinging to libertarian and small government ideologies that are simply not applicable to the present times. Even, and that, I, well, even more so on the left, individualism has caused problems because it has caused all these niche causes dragging away from like a focus on working class issues. Right. Oh, well, yeah, no. Well, and I mean, in some ways, you know, a lot of people early on were saying, well, look, this pandemic is going to end up underscoring the need for universal health care, Medicare for all, of course. And I I think so. And that's why I was saying, I think it's quite possible that by the time Biden gets in office, it is going to be necessary for some kind of uh, I I don't I'm saying FDR simply because it's a, a nationalist project, but I, I, I think it may end up happening. And I think it's going to be an incredible irony if, you know, Biden's the one who's president, but natural circumstances end up forcing a kind of temporary Medicare for all that could end up happening here. Biden, if you listen closely to what Biden has said, um, he is not a Medicare for all person, but he has in, absorbed more of Bernie's rhetoric. But his specific messaging towards the pandemic has been very explicit. I mean, he's very expli- explicitly said that he wants the government to bail everything out. That's what he said. Now, whether he'll be able to get it done, I don't know. But I, I, I think he's been very clear that he wants a massive, massive bailout right now. Now, to who? exactly. Well, a, a lot of that will end up probably going to corporations. Mm-hmm. But dude, even if we can get, even if we can get a fourth of a trillion dollar bailout to go to people, that would that would be big right now. I mean, yeah. I don't think I don't think we're gonna have a choice soon, man. I it's really gonna, don't think we're gonna have a choice. It's gonna depend on the Senate, in my opinion, because the one thing that these morons all fucked up on both parties is getting a second check out. Oh yeah. No, and, I actually just got my first check, dude. Yeah. I didn't get the check I got. I, it was deposited into my account, but I had to call for a year. I was, or close to a year. I've been calling and trying to figure out how to get it. And yeah. uh, it, the irony is I got it the, the, the same week I didn't need it. I got paid for something else. And so suddenly I didn't need it anymore. But I, I mean, obviously, I still need it. But the yeah. reality is, dude, like, this is this is serious shit. This is not just about free money. This is people aren't going to spend money 
Yeah, that's they the don't thing. have like, it. Even if and if you like can't spend money, like Keynesian liberal. Yeah, you should understand. This. You should understand this is simple. You, if no one can buy anything, businesses go under. Businesses go under. Banks can't collect on their their debts. I mean, this is a chain reaction. That it's just basic and economics. And I see, yeah, I see a lot of like the pro business crowd being like, well, these businesses are screwed because they're shut down, even though they're all doing like carry out and dine outside. And but stuff what, like but, that. but what's the alternative? Let, let everyone stay open and then have a bunch of people die. And but it's then... not even that. It's not the fact that they're, o- it's not the fact that they're open that bothers me. It's the fact that like, oh, even if you are open, who the fuck can afford to come eat here? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't no, have, he, I, I'm on unemployment, dude. I don't have fucking money to order out from anyone. Who know? wants uh, dude, I'm on a massively limited budget. Yeah. I was I've been straight up broke for a while, but like I, I don't understand the alternative. I mean, basically, we've been seeing a gaslighting of working class uh, ideology for years, decades now. And it's inspiring that we're finally starting to see a mobilization of cohesive working class arguments um, against uh, the uh, elite predatory class in this country. And I think if there is a silver lining to this COVID pandemic, it is, I think this is going to forever change uh, the way that the working class deals with this argument. And I think the pressure on Biden is going to be incredibly strong. I, I've seen messages from uh, people uh, high up in the AOC and the other movements saying, "We are not going to let up. This is going to be, this is going to be very unlike the progressive uh, wing that went up against Obama. This is going to be a hardcore, all-out assault." And if Biden does not, if Biden and Harris do not uh, live up to it, they're going to lose in the next election. That's all there is to it. Well, one, I don't, I don't think they care. <laughs> two, I don't know that even. You're right. Now, I don't think they care. But now uh, that they've won the election, I don't think they have a motivation to do jack shit. You know? I, I think there's a part, like I, I think there's a part of people that care. I mean, I think that. Uh, when you talk about these corporatist pricks who are in positions of high power, yes, they're blinded by their own power. Yes, they're blinded by their own hubris. But I still think there is a part of people that is human that understands, especially in a historic situation like that, when you know the history books are going, the his, I mean, the eyes of history are on these elected officials right now. And I, I think that's one thing we have going for us is, this is this is going to be history, dude. 2020 and the pandemic, uh, there's going to be no escaping this history. And if we end up having a million Americans die from COVID and they didn't do shit to help us, uh, no one is going to survive the, this, this test of time. Of course, well, Biden's not Biden won't survive the next four years. So, we're, yeah, well, I mean, that's where we get the socialism or barbarism equation. I just lean more towards the barbarism. Anyway, we that was, that was a yeah. good show, man. Yeah, I'm glad you got him on. And and uh, who do we have coming up? Uh, we have coming up. Uh, I'm working on a couple guests, but who do we have coming up yeah, for next well, week? We'll work on next week as a surprise. <laughs> we got right, somebody uh, though. We got a few okay. in the hopper. We'll figure out which one's best. But yeah, we'll be back next week once again. I am James Carey here with Jake Anderson, and uh, thank you for 
we're still ramp, ramping things up here, but we definitely appreciate you listening. Yeah, everybody, we've been getting listens, we've been getting responses, and we're happy to see it. So make sure you subscribe and rate us on whatever you're listening on and follow us. Um, and follow us on Facebook, and soon we'll have a website and some more social media accounts up, and we will be back next week. Arise, you workers from your slumber. Arise, you prisoners of want. That's right. For reason in revolt now thunder. Chains of hatred, greed, and fear. Ha <laughs> ha! Away with all your superstitions. Serve our masses. Arise, arise. We'll change hands for the old tradition. Just to win the prize So comrades, come on and rally Then the last fight, let us face The international unites The whole darn human race So comrades, come on, let's go rally And the last fight, let us face The international unites the whole